So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang app. Downloaded it, listened to it, real cool, you know. And the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the cold, but... I thought he was just going to give her a peck on the cheek, but he gave her a full-blooded, mouth-to-mouth, Johnny Depp kiss. She passed clean out. We had to call, <laughs> we had, had to call the resuscitation team. <laughs> Welcome to Beginning and Middle. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Professor Ricky Richardson, who's kind of my honorary godfather. He's been married to my mum's best friend, Sarah, for the last 35 years, and I've known him for as long as I've known anybody. He's fiercely intelligent. I think he's got literally something like 30 letters after his name. Uh, and yet at the same time, he's genuinely a kind of true eccentric. And as far back as I can remember, you know, you'd arrive at the house and the door would be flung open and there he'd be standing in this kind of full ceremonial dress from the Middle East with a caftan and some kind of headpiece. And he'd have a bottle of champagne and he would have just come in from flying his aeroplane and be telling you all about this fantastic stuff that's going on around the world. And, and uh, I always found him really interesting and enjoyed spending time with him. And today we're going to find out a lot more about his life. And I'm going to start by asking him about his mum and dad. Well, my mum's still alive. My dad died in 2001, sadly. He was a very eccentric chap, uh, and they met when they were in India. My mum was in the Wrens during the war, working for Mountbatten as a signals officer, so she was posted to Ceylon, where she lived. And she, I don't know where she met my dad, but she met my dad somewhere. And your dad, he was in the RAF out there? My or? dad was in the RAF. Um, he was a wing commander, and he was running... He was an engineer by training so he was running all the maintenance of the of the aircraft being used to bomb the japanese in from india and i didn't know your father but your mum she's she's a remarkable lady granules she's granules is great she's 70 she's sorry she's 93 <laughs> and is still as sharp as a whistle remembers everything and is incredibly active and she travels around the world as if it was a sort of bus route she's still going isn't still she still going and and it's that that keeps her alive i think because she's absolutely interested in everything and enormously energetic she was a ballet dancer, right? She was, which was quite unusual. Before the war, she got a scholarship to be to dance with the Saddler's Wells Company that became the Royal Ballet. So she performed as a ballet dancer. Her dad, who was quite a smart man in uh, in the army, used to meet her outside the stage door in full sort of dress uniform, which is quite different from <laughs> a lot of other people in that. She came from quite a kind of conservative background then. She did. She came from, you know, established, I suppose you'd call them landed gentry these days, family. And so, and so it, was wonder, it was wonderful that she was able to enjoy being a ballet dancer, which she did. Very much. Going to the aid of Poland, who is so bravely resisting this wicked and unprovoked attack upon her people. And, and then, of course, the war broke and um, in 1939, so her aspirations to become a sort of a Margot Fontaine figure uh, were thwarted by the war when she joined up with the Wrens and she fought, I mean, she served with the Wrens for the whole of the length of the war. Now that we have resolved to finish it, I know that you will all play your part with calmness and courage. So two years after they were married, you were born? Correct. I think it was a bit longer because my elder brother was born for... He was born in 1945. <clears throat> so I think they got married in 44. And I got... I was born in 1947. And what was your childhood like? Was it an idyllic childhood? It was, it was quite fun, yes. We lived in Surrey during my early childhood. We spent a lot of time in Spain. We, spent in, we lived in Spain for about five or six years in the early 1950s during the Franco era when Spain was really a developing country. I mean, I remember seeing, we travelled all over Spain while we were living there and explored. And it was quite difficult to get around because there weren't any motorways or anything like that. And I remember seeing children in Andalusia in the south of Spain that I would now recognise had 
protein, energy, malnutrition. So, you know, it was a very poor country in those days. And then, and then what about your school life? Were you always an academic kid? Um, I was quite bright, but I wasn't sort of scholarship standard. Um, but I was always determined to be a doctor. I knew I wanted to be a doctor when I was eight, nine years old. And so the whole of my academic was along, was in order to achieve that. Why was it so clear that your path was... I don't know. I think I watched a programme on the television, one of the early documentaries about the life, a day in the life of a doctor. It wasn't like House or Casualty or something. Dr Kildare. It was before then. And I just realised that that's what I wanted to do. So it was very clear for me. I didn't have any confusion as many people have these days. Okay, so you went off to Eton and you knew you were, you were destined to study medicine. And then you... Well, I hadn't got into medical school. <clears throat> I, I got into medical school after I left school. Like I, I had a gap year and so I literally went off my parents' radar for months on end <clears throat> before re-establishing contact with them. Um, and that was exciting. And it was during that time that I heard I'd been offered a place at medical school. And what were you doing in Botswana? I was working in a place called Machudi, which is a small village outside of the, the, the capital Gaborones. I was teaching at the school there, and I built a school with bricks and mortar, a primary school, uh, because there were so many children and there wasn't a location for, to school them. So I decided to build a school. So I taught myself how to make bricks with the help of of people living in Machudi. And we, and, we, and we raised some money to buy the cement and stuff, and we just built a school. And when I left, it was rather lovely. I was able to see the first class being taken in the school, which I'd built with my bare hand. This inherent uh, quality of wanting to help people and wanting to make things better for people and and all kind of mixed in with adventure as well. Where does where does it come from? Do you think? I'm not sure. I think probably, well, the the wanting to do to put something back. That's something that's always been a thread through my life because I've had a very interesting and varied career <clears throat> by anybody's standards, and I've been very fortunate in having been able to travel widely as part of my job or my various jobs. Ricky came back from Botswana to take up his place at medical school, but rather than going straight into clinical medicine, he opted for another course. I decided to do something slightly odd. You would expect that. So I decided to do an immunology degree first before I did my clinical medicine. So I did what's called first... I did, was exempted for first MB because of the, the, the grades I had at A-level. So I went straight into second MB finished that and then I did a I did an immunology course for a further 18 months during which time I drove a Land Rover to India and back with some friends that was in the long vacation which was a great excitement and what were you why were you driving to India well why more not? adventure more adventure why not and it was the days when the roads to in, I mean it was it was the sort of when the hippie trail was just beginning and the roads were absolutely appalling and uh, it was quite a dangerous thing to do. For example, we drove right across the middle of Afghanistan and uh, on, a, on a cart track, basically. And uh, we had no idea of the risks that we were taking, but we managed to survive. And it was exciting. We met some absolutely fascinating people. And were you, were you a bit of a hippie at this point? Not really. Well, I had long hair and an earring, I suppose, if that's, an, that's hippie. That's the definition of a hippie, but I wasn't, didn't think of myself as a hippie. I was just an adventurer. And a dry good for carry me through. My pistol swore my body too. So by the time Ricky had finished his immunology degree, he was already married to his first wife, and I'm going to pick up now uh, by asking him why he moved into paediatrics. So I was having second thoughts as to whether to become a researcher, a medical researcher, or whether to become a clinician. So I did my degree in immunology. I got a 2-1, and I decided I really didn't want to be a researcher. I wanted to be with people. So I did the full medical degree, but qualified, and then did three years training to become an adult chest physician, because that was what I thought I wanted to be. And after three years, I suddenly woke up one morning and realised I didn't like grown-ups at all, right. and I didn't want to be an adult chest physician. So I went right back to the beginning and had to repeat and start my training in paediatrics, which is what I wanted to do. 
and that was the, the time at which I lost my my daughter, who died of a cot death, which helped, I suppose, swing me towards paediatrics. What do you think makes a, a, a great paediatrician? Because I would imagine you will have seen thousands of paediatricians coming through uh, over the years. What makes a great paediatrician? I think it's very simple. You, you've got to, obviously, you've got to like children and you've got to have the gift to be able to make children laugh and relax and participate in the, in the medical process. And by singing funny songs and by jumping, I get them to hop up and down and catch a rubber ball. And we do crazy things in the clinic, which right. is quite unusual, but it gets their confidence. I get them always to listen to their own hearts. And then I get them, their mums and dads, to listen to the child's hearts. And, and when the child sees the mum listening to their heart, they, f- they realise it's a safe place. Because Sarah was, <coughs> Sarah was telling me that you were always, uh, you were getting holed up in front of the disciplinary council for... Oh, yes, I used to do terrible things. Oh, my God. There was one, at, when I did my first house job at Great Ormond Street in 1979, which is when I first went to Great Ormond Street, there was a little girl on the ward who had tuberculosis of the spine and she was in a, in a great plaster cast from her knees up to the middle of her chest so she couldn't bend while the tuberculosis healed. And this was very boring for her because she had to lie in bed and she couldn't turn over. So we got the hospital carpenter to build her a sledge with wheels so she could lie on the sledge and then we gave her boxing gloves so with the boxing gloves she could pull herself around and suddenly become mobile, and it was brilliant. So successful that we decided to get the hospital carpenter to build about ten of these and to have a derby race with the kids and the nurses and the doctors. So we all got on it in the big day, and there was music, and the whole ward got involved, and I got on my sledge, and with all the kids got on theirs, and we went careering around the third floor. Unfortunately... A very, very irascible orthopaedic surgeon called Mr Lloyd Roberts was having his ward round with American professors visiting and all sorts of people, and we knocked them flying. (laughs) And I was hauled up before the disciplinary committee for inappropriate behaviour, but I got off because I argued the case that I was just, you know, making the children laugh. Hush, little baby. Don't say a word Papa's gonna buy you a mockingbird If that mockingbird don't sing Papa's gonna buy you a diamond ring If that diamond ring turns brass Papa's gonna buy you a looking glass If that looking glass gets broke Papa's gonna buy you a billy goat Gonna buy you a doggy named Rover. If that dog named Rover don't bark, Papa's gonna buy you a horse and cart. If that horse and cart fall down, you'll still be the sweetest little baby in town. You you managed to hold on to your job. I managed to hold on to my job, and then. I was, I can't remember whether it was before or after, I, I went out to Nicaragua to, well, I went out actually initially to the Upper Volta for Save the Children Fund. I spent six months working for Save the Children Fund. Uh, this was in the late 1970s. And you just decided that you wanted to get out of the clinical stuff for a bit? Or? No, I knew I was going to stay in clinical stuff, but I just wanted, I, I wanted to get into the developing world and see what I, what was happening out there. So I went to Save the Children Fund. They hired me to spend some time in the Upper Volta, which is in West Africa, very poor, in a place called Uwagadugu. The Upper Volta is now called Burkina Faso. Right. And I was at a place called Bagorum Gorum, which is right up on the border with Mali in the north of the country, extremely isolated. I was the only doctor for 100,000 square miles, and uh, I was woefully inadequately uh, equipped for the job. But I ran a little baby hospital there, which was funded by Save the Children Fund. 
And on one occasion, I shut the hospital down and went out and immunised because there was a meningococcal outbreak and, and, and it kills children who haven't been immunised against the meningococcal vaccine with meningococcal vaccine. So I shut the hospital down without permission, went out and immunised all these kids on a camp by, by camel. We used to ride out to the villages on camels with a little fridge, um, a paraffin-fired fridge, to keep the vaccines cold. And we immunised all of these children and undoubtedly saved literally thousands of lives because the meningococcal epidemic swept through, which it does at the end of the, the rainy season before the great, before the great dry areas. And, um, and, that, and the, the Save the Children Fund were quite affronted that I'd taken the decision to shut the hospital to vaccine children, but in fact we probably saved more lives by doing so. Were you wearing kind of Tuareg outfits when you were doing this? Absolutely. I, I was indistinguishable from the other Tuaregs. Is this where you first, because I've known Ricky all my life, and uh, invariably when you go to Ricky's house, he would come in and w- whatever time of the year it is, whatever time of the day it is, he will be in a kaftan yep. or some <clears throat> kind of Tuareg outfit or, you know, something from, you know, far off shores. Well, it's very comfortable to wear a, a sort of kaftan type things like the Tuaregs do. It's, it's loose-fitting clothes because it gets very hot there and you get sandstorms and stuff and it's very much more comfortable than sort of tight jeans and a T-shirt. After three months in Upper Volta, Save the Children decided they were going to move Ricky to Ethiopia and that would mean that he had some downtime in Kenya. And so rather audaciously, Ricky invited this lady out from London called Sarah, who he'd only met once before, to come and join him. I met her on the tennis court when I was, I w- was making up a four and she happened to be on the other side. She was a friend of a friend. But I really didn't know her very well before I went off to the Upper Volta. So I got a message to her to say, meet me in Kenya, not knowing for a single second, not expecting her to respond. Anyway, I heard nothing, so I flew to Kenya to have a break before I started in Ethiopia. And I went, I guess off chance, I went to the airport to the, on the day that she was meant to arrive. <clears throat> and of course she was on the plane, but she walked straight past me because she said I was posing and that uh, therefore she knew it was me immediately, but she walked straight past me. And I went running after her and said, look, it's me, it's me. And she laughed and she said, oh, yeah, I know, I did see you, but I was just... uh she was just exerting her stamp of authority, which has not left. Great. Well, at least you know, she got in there early. Absolutely. That was quite brave of her to come all that way to meet a guy that she barely knew. I think it was quite brave of her. She must have... Was that in the, was that in the middle of the 70s? Towards the end of the 70s. But it was quite brave of her, of her because I, we didn't really know each other very well and therefore it was a bit of a high-risk strategy for her. But obviously she felt it was worth it. And uh, I'm glad she did. So uh, you were in Kenya for a couple of weeks together we, and you fell in love? We, we had a couple of weeks. I, don't, I think I'd fallen in love before that. Um, but we had a couple of weeks and then... Do you I, believe in love at first sight then? I think you know pretty soon, yes. I think it is first sight. You, the, the, the chemistry happens at first sight, you know. Then you have to discover whether you like somebody or not because the liking is much more important in a way because it's a lifelong commitment to live together. But then I got a message, because I speak Spanish, I got a message from Save the Children Fund that they didn't want me to go to Ethiopia anymore. They wanted me to come back to London for a briefing and then send me out to Nicaragua, where there was a civil war going on, and they had quite a a lot of operations in Nicaragua which they needed sorting out during the civil war. So I flew back to London, got briefed by the foreign office, because... Heading for a civil war was not a, a light undertaking. And they said if I get myself to Panama, they could organise an RAF Hercules uh, lift to Managua because the airport was closed for normal traffic. And the only way to get there was on a, an RAF Hercules which had been lent to the Nicaraguans to <clears throat> provide food, food supplies. So that's what I did. I got myself to Panama via Miami introduced myself to the RAF crew and found myself at the 
controls of a, an RAF Hercules. Well, did they let you fly? They let me fly from the from the the co-pilot seat. That was fun. It's amazing how the world has changed. Can you imagine now? I mean, you know, like you know, oh, just let the doctor. The doctor says he's a pilot. Let him come up and have a go as well. You know, like it just wouldn't happen. No, I suppose not. There are too many regulations. But it got quite hairy because the airport at Managua, which is the capital of Nicaragua, was changing hands all the all the time between the Somisistas, the old regime, and the Sandinistas, who were the revolutionaries. So as we approached, we had bullets, we had you know guns fired at us and bullets passing through the fuselage of the aircraft as we came into land. It was quite a hairy moment, and then I had to leave them. This. My RAF crew, who'd been so kind to me, were very worried about me stepping off into what was a totally unknown situation. Um, but they made sure that I was handed over to a person who looked reasonably responsible, who was from Save the Children Fund in the ground, on the ground in Nicaragua. And they took off, and I must say I felt rather sad because that was my link with sort of sanity. And I was walking into a civil war, which indeed it was. And so what did you have to do at this day? Well, there was a, a clinic which they were had been running in Manises, which is about 15 kilometres outside of Managua, and they'd closed it down because they, you know, there was a strict b- b- curfew and there were ambushes and there was real fighting going on. So I reopened the clinic, or at least I said I was going to reopen the clinic. Um... And, of course, the first morning at 6 o'clock, there was a long queue of families with sick children waiting to be seen. And I did something that has haunted me for the rest of my life, I think, and will do so, because I had to walk down the line and pick out the children that I could do something for in about three to four minutes, which meant abandoning the children who were really sick, because they would occupy too much of my time to be able to deal with the volume of children who were there, and the look in the eyes of the mothers that I passed by and said, no, 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 okay, no, because essentially I was murdering their children. How do you come to terms with that? How do you get your head around that? That must be a lot to deal with. It is a lot to deal with, but I knew that efficiency, the efficiency had to be respected, meaning I had to do as much as I could for as many as I could, rather than just picking out the really sick ones who would have occupied my whole day. And the others who I could have done something about would have been left aside. So it was sobering, but an, 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 an anguishing decision. But it was the right decision, now that I look back. It makes me feel quite emotional still thinking about it. I often wonder with doctors, you know, because you have a strange relationship with mortality. You have to face it every day and deal with it every day. It must be kind of intensified even more so because you're a paediatrician and you're dealing with children, you know? I suppose so. I mean, the people who say that that as doctors we don't get affected by the sort of emotions of looking after very sick children are crazy because, of course, we get involved. We just tend to compartmentalise it. So there's the sort of the medicine, you know, doing the medical bit and making the right decisions based on your knowledge and experience. And then the emotional part of it, you put sort of slightly aside temporarily because otherwise you can't deal with the sort of, with the scientific, the clinical decision-making process. Um, But... The biggest problem in Nicaragua was the fact that there was an active civil war. I mean, I saw some terrible things. They used to use small children to run over the roofs because they were light with petrol, with Molotov cocktails to throw down on the enemy. And, of course, the the Molotov cocktail would would break or would burn, and the children arrived with the most appalling burns, appalling burns, which, you know, mostly killed them in the end. There was some terrible... I saw some terrible things grenades being thrown into a crowd of people, the kind of things that we see on the television in Iraq today, I was seeing every day in Nicaragua. And because there was so much disturbance and shooting at night, I used to sleep in a bath, because in the bathroom of the house that I was staying in, there was a big 
window, a bit like it was a high slit window, um, which was the safest and the, the safest place to sleep was the bath because it meant that bullets couldn't, you know, stray bullets couldn't get through the window and sh- and kill you while you were asleep. Sarah told me that at this point you got, you guys were were courting via letter. Correct, and uh, and she said one of the highlights in her in her flat, which she shared with her friends, her girlfriends, was the arrival of Ricky's weekly letter, and and none of them would go to work until she'd sat down and they'd all read it on the stairs. That's correct, and they weren't sure whether or not you'd been, you know, just making little pricks on your your fingers and 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 dousing the letters in blood, <laughs> or if indeed it was, you know, it was it was genuine blood stains. Well, she didn't know whether I was p- telling the truth, but of course I was. Because that was what I mean. When you're in a civil war, it, it was it was all of that and worse. I didn't. I spared her some of the more gory things that I'd seen. Um, there was a little boy I remember well who who had been holding a grenade which had gone off, and the whole of the front of his body had been literally. Uh, shattered with um, shrapnel and he'd lost both arms and he'd lost some part of his abdomen as well. And he was still alive and sort of smiling, looking for some help. He died. He died about an hour later. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, we will go. 
one ate a hole in my best Sunday hat. He's looking for a home. He's looking for a home. The farmer said to the merchant, I ain't made but one bale. For I'd give you that one, I'd fight and go to jail. I'll keep my home. I'll keep my home. Weevils got half the cotton and the merchants got the rest. Didn't leave the farmer's wife but one old cotton dress and it's full of holes. And it's full of holes. It's full of holes. It's full of holes. Now if anyone should ask you who was it made this song? So the situation was getting significantly worse in Nicaragua, which meant Ricky had to be brought home. And we're now going to rejoin as I asked Ricky about how things were developing with Sarah. I then did a diploma in tropical medicine at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. And she was in London. And so we used to meet in Herefordshire. Um, in in our family home, which is where I asked her to marry me because I thought that she's stuck with it, a fairly unusual courtship, and therefore probably she was up for it, but I didn't know for certain. But I did ask her, and she did say yes. And uh, we got married in December, and it was about that time that the School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene in Liverpool were asked for a paediatrician to go to Brunei. Right, and and, uh, and so you go off this young married couple. How much time do you think you'd actually spent together, kind of collective, if, if you added it all up? Not very much, really. It was a bit a bit like going off on a lifetime adventure with a complete stranger, but we got to know each other quite quickly. So you guys, uh, you went to Brunei, and you went there with, ostensibly with the, the, the kind of task of writing a report on how to set up a paediatric yeah, service. The, that, was the, that was the initial assignment. It was a three-month assignment to do a master plan. And that's because they just, Brunei, the oil price had just been regulated. Well, they, 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 at the time, I mean, Brunei was really a very backward place when we went in 1980. The impact of the oil money hadn't become apparent. People were still living in houses on stilts over the river. It was, it was, healthcare services were pretty mediocre, frankly. It was a place that was obviously looking to improve its healthcare services. They'd never had a paediatrician before. The preterm babies were looked after by the obstetricians. They'd never ventilated a baby. When a baby needed ventilation, they died. And the ad, the adult physicians and surgeons looked after the children in hospital. So when I arrived as a properly trained paediatrician, it was there was quite a task. We had to do facilities for inpatients, for outpatients, for maternal child health clinics, for immunisation, facilities for the handicapped kids, the whole range of paediatric services. And that was what I recommended in the report. And as I said earlier, having come back to Great Ormond Street, they then said they expected me to go back and implement the report. The recommendations, which I did. The Sultan Brunei, f- for a while, was kind of uh, lauded as he was the richest man in the world for a bit, right? Mm-hmm. And he and you, you got quite close? So I was personal physician to the Sultan's father, and I was physician to His Majesty's children and all of the royal princes and princesses, as well as doing my job as the, the state paediatrician for the country. Right, and they made you, a, uh, is it a datai or a...? They made me a dato, yes, uh, the most honourable order of the crown of Brunei. They gave me two medals, actually. One was a dato, which is like a kind of knighthood in Brunei, and the other was a, was a royal service medal for looking after the royal family. More ceremonial dress? More ceremonial dress. So it sort of played to my strength. Perfect. You were over the moon. Look at the outfit. I've still got the outfit. And then you were there, I think you were there about five years into a 10-year contract. Yeah, and it was quite an interesting time because I was most unusually, the the Sultan gave me a 10-year contract, which for an expatriate was unheard of. And halfway through that time, we were very happy. Our children were born. Sasha was born. Our eldest son was born in Brunei. But anyway, after I'd been there five years, um, as I said, I got a call from my boss at Great Ormond Street who said, OK, you've been there, got the T-shirt. 
done everything you need to do. I now need you to go to Oman. And I said, with Otto, I can't go to Oman because I've signed a 10-year contract and I'm only halfway through. But he said, oh, yes, but you can go and ask the Sultan if he'll accept um, that you break the contract. So I asked for an audience, sat, sat with, the, with His Majesty, explained my predicament, and he thought for a bit and he said, well, you've trained the young paediatricians in Brunei to take over, so there's a succession, so I will have no objection, which is the way he says, I give you permission, provided you um, there is a condition, and the condition is that whenever I need you and call for you, you come. So then you, you get out of uh, Brunei. Yeah, and we went to Oman in the Middle East, which where we spent two years, and that was actually fascinating because I was able to apply all of the practices I'd learnt in Brunei in a new country and I set up specialist outpatient services, that was my main task and we were there for two years. So you, you implemented a whole healthcare system for in, in, in Oman for paediatrics and then and then at some point you're, you're starting to think look maybe we need to come back to the UK or the kids? No, the, 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 uh, uh, again, the Great Ormond Street we have a long term um, relationship with the Ministry of Health in Oman and so we have a senior paediatrician out there at all times and I happen to be filling one of those slots. So when I'd finished my two years, I came back to, to Great Ormond Street as a consultant and <clears throat> I was actually had an academic post. I was sub-dean of the Institute of Child Health, which is the academic half of Great Ormond Street and I was responsible for the clinical fellowship uh, program, so paediatricians who came from all over the world to train in a particular specialty with us. I was in charge of that program. And, and so what's nice now is that I've got ex-students all over the world and they're all now in sort of Ministry of Health, Minister of Health positions. And I've got a whole network of people around the world. So when Ricky was back in London, he ran into a friend called Mike Dixon and Mike offered Ricky a challenge that would lead to the two of them setting up WizKids together. Ah, WizKids, WizKids. Well, I, we, a friend of mine called Mike Dixon, um, who I didn't know very well at the time, but he came up to me at a drinks party and said, what are you going to do next year that's meaningful? Rather a sort of heavy question, really. So I said, well, you know, get through to the end of the year, have a few glasses of wine, and enjoy myself. And he said, no, 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 no. What, if you, what, what, what are you going to do that's actually going to make a contribution? So I said, I haven't the faintest idea. And he said, right, well, I've got a challenge for you. I've been given two tickets to run in the London Marathon. And I think that you and I both ought to run in the London Marathon and raise money for handicapped children. So I said, okay, fine, I'm, I'll accept the challenge if, if we, we did do it together. And then he sent me round a training pack. And I thought, blimey, he's serious about this because I thought it was a bit of a joke. And <clears throat> so we started to train for the marathon, in, which is always in April in London, as you know. And then in about February, um, I said to him, look, there's no point in running just for the sake of it, let's run for a cause. And he said, well, I've got a cause, because he used to own a bicycle shop, and some little girl had driven into the bicycle shop on a machine that was a cross between a forklift truck and a go-kart, lifted herself up, ordered what she wanted, and off again. So he was in, intrigued, said, you know, what is that machine you're, you're riding? And she said, oh, I'll, I've, I've got cerebral palsy, and my dad is an engineer at Cambridge, and he built this for me so I can get around. And so we realised that there was obviously a need. So um, Mike found a little girl called Sammy from Lincoln, who, because he 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 he, he contacted the father at Cambridge and said, "Is is there anyone who is waiting for one of these chairs?" That isn't, and it isn't funded at the moment. And he said, actually, yes, we've, we do have a chair which we built for someone, but um, the funding hasn't come through, and therefore we have a, a girl called Sammy who lives in Lincoln. Anyway, Mike went up to see Sammy, who's 
was living with her, who was very handicapped with cerebral palsy. I think father was in prison and mum was struggling a bit. And so she became our cause for the marathon. And we raised enough money to buy the chair, obviously, and give it to her. And so I, then we asked ourselves why we'd done this, or why we had to do this. And so the answer was seemed to be a bit uncertain, so we, or a bit blurred. So I said, why don't we ask all of the children's charities who deal with mobility to get together and we'll ask them the question as to why they're not doing this. And so Mike said, oh, they won't come. And I said, oh, yes, they will, because I'll hold it in the boardroom of Great Ormond Street. And they all came. And we told our little story of how we'd raised the money for Sammy by running a marathon. And we asked them why they weren't doing this work. And they said, well, we're allowed to raise money for mobility, for um, alteration of houses and for research and stuff like that, but not for actual mobility aids. So we said, OK, if we start a charity that is only provides mobility aids for, for mobility-challenged children, will you provide the names of the children? And they said, oh, yes, you don't understand starting a national charity, huge undertaking. And I said, we said they said, fine, we'll just ask you to do this for two years. And if after two years it's a failure, then you can all go back and say, well, we'll do it our way. But if it's a success, you commit to supporting it for a further five years. And so they said, OK. And so in two years' time, we reconvened the same meeting. And the first year, we raised, I think, £50,000. And the second year, £250,000. And it's now, um, it's now a thriving and successful charity with a, great, with a growing expertise in understanding what mobility needs are for handicapped children, such that the, with the Department of Health's um, support. We're now said it. We've been running assessment centres all up and down the country for children with mobility aids because we know more about what they need than uh, than the government does. Wow! And how many how many children do you think you've helped? Tens of thousands, I'd imagine. Yeah, probably. I was a trustee for ten years. I founded it with Mike Dixon and his wife Shuna, the yep. three of us, and I was a trustee for ten years. And then in two thousand and something, I stepped down. And it's because I'm a starter motor. That's what I'm good at. Right. I, I'm a, getting things up and running. I'm very good at. When the engine's running... Doesn't need you anymore. Not my skill set. Over the years, the families of numerous patients have given back to Great Ormond Street to say thank you. And we're going to rejoin as I ask Ricky about one particularly memorable family. You got a phone call one afternoon from somebody saying that there was an actor in town and his child was sick and uh, could you go and and attend to the child you drove down on your moped to to somewhere in surrey i think and you went into the house and it was johnny depp's child he was over filming and the and and johnny depp's kid was sick right yes he was over filming um sweeney todd he was renting a house in petersham and his daughter lily rose was had an upset tummy and was was not very well. I was actually at Great Ormond Street at the time. I was asked by a colleague who I didn't know very well if I would go down and see this child, um, which I did. Um, I wasn't actually on a scooter at the time. They sent a car for me. But um, after I was visiting every day, then I had to go abroad myself. And anyway, when I got back to see the child on Saturday morning, she was really very ill indeed. Um, and so I picked her up, literally picked her up in my arms, and I said to Johnny, we're going to Great Ormond Street. And he said, what, tomorrow? And I said, no, now. And we admitted her to the ward, and she was really very ill for some time. Fully recovered now, I think. And you, uh, you built a relationship with Johnny th through that whole experience? Yes, because we used to spend the nights that she, was, she had to have a, a number of complicated medical procedures done to help her. And Johnny and I spent many a night playing the guitar. He plays the guitar rather well, and I, I play the guitar, I used to, reasonably well. So we used to sing songs to her during the night to keep her spirits up while she was getting better and treated. I believe Johnny kind of repaid the favour to Great Ormond Street by coming back. Yes, he was wonderful. He said, what could he do to, be, to say thank you? And I said, well, what would be marvellous if you just come over for a, an afternoon and just go around the hospital and see some of the kids and... 
And he said, can I come in my Captain Jack outfit? And I said, yes, absolutely. So he came, um, he did it for two afternoons, but he came for the first one and he changed into his Captain Jack outfit in the in the chief executive's office, much to her delight. She was outside the door when he was changing. <clears throat> and um, we went around the the hospital and he he sat on the bed of all these kids. And, of course, the mothers all swooned. And the, several of the mothers came up to me and said, how did you get someone who looks so familiar to, so similar to Johnny Depp? I said, it is Johnny Depp. And he was wonderful. He gave the whole, his time. He gave his time and he was funny. And he was just, he made every child that we, we went and visited feel that they were the only person in the world. And I heard on the way out, he, he made one of the nurses really swoon, right? Oh, well, one of the nurses wanted to take a photograph of him and, and with her. So we did that, did, borrowed, took the camera and did it. And then, and then she, she went off, but she was sort of hovering around and sort of a bit shaky. So I said to Johnny, you know that girl, um, that, the nurse over there on the way out, could you just give her a kiss? thinking that that would be nice for her. Well, I thought he was just going to give her a peck on the cheek, but he gave her a full-blooded, mouth-to-mouth, Johnny Depp kiss. She passed clean out. We had to call, <laughs> we had, had to call the resuscitation team. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> it was wonderful. Teach your children well Their father's hell Did slowly go by Outside of his clinical work, Ricky advises the health organisation and in 2010 he became director of the Globally Health Ambassador Programme and the first person he asked to be involved was Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who's an old family friend and who'd known Ricky since he was a boy. In addition to his, the impact that he has on people around the world, he's a very deeply spiritual person and it's, a sort of other, it's the other side of him <clears throat> which is immensely powerful. When I went to to Cape Town to ask if he would be chairman of the, the Global Health Foundation, he said, do you want me to do it because of love of you? And I said, well, actually, no, although that's a given after all of these years. I want you to do it because no one turns you down. Whenever you ask something, they do it because you've reached that sort of level of uh, respect and iconic visibility that people don't turn you down and therefore we can get the job done with you at the helm far faster and far more efficiently with the benefit of all of your experience. That's why I want you to do it. He said, okay, that's an honest answer. I'll do it. So what exactly is e-health? E I mean, e-health is basically any kind of IT application to improve access to healthcare services or delivery of healthcare services. And it has four major domains. One is the clinical applications, that's electronic health records, clinical decision-making software, so you have a computer on the desk and while the patient's describing their symptoms, you're entering it into a computer and the computer then works out what are the likely diagnoses. A telemonitoring, so that if you've got something like diabetes or some chronic illness, instead of having to go and visit the hospital frequently, you do the whole thing online on remote control with remote monitoring, video conferencing for consultations. <clears throat> That's all the, the clinical applications of health of e-health. Then you have the educational applications, using e-learning and the web to bring the healthcare professional body up to speed with modern developments. Half-life of medicine is about three years, so every three years, half of what I know is useless and has to be replaced with new knowledge. The third domain is using the media much more proactively to inform people about health matters relevant to themselves and teach them how to look after their own health. And finally, the, the golden egg, if you like, is if you can imagine a world where everybody has an electronic health record, you bin them all together into a huge data mine and start to use it as a predictor of future hostile healthcare events globally or in divided populations. Then you can start to see what kind of health problems are going to um, apply 50 years out and you can start to put precautions together in place to stop it. All of that is e-health. Professor Ricky Richardson, thank you so much for coming on Beginning in Middle. Uh, my final question to you is, what's the last act going to be? What's next? <laughs> well, now that's an interesting question. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, what will the last act be? But in a way, if I can get the e-health, with, with the help of 
but Desmond and others, if I can get the eHealth Foundation up to a point where it's making a real difference to healthcare provision in the developing world, I that's a good exit. There's a wonderful word that but Desmond uses, which is called Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T, which I think is a word in the Xhosa language, which means that we are who we are because of other people, i.e. what we achieve is not an achievement of ourselves alone. Humanity is inextricably linked, and whatever we achieved is achieved th through other people. And I think that's a very good principle to, th to think about. We, we all, our, our humanity, my humanity is linked to you and your humanity, and we're inextricably linked because we are, we are human. And all of the people we know are part of that, the creation of achievement. If we are successful in any area of life, we are there because we are helped by many, many others. And I think that if we can get the world to start thinking collectively, I, I, I title my a talk on e-health as learning to share. If we can only learn to share and be, we can be so much more productive than we are at the moment where we're sort of holding on to our money, but learning to do things together, learning to share our resources equitably, learning to disseminate the resources that we have in such bountiful plenty equitably, that would be a good legacy to be thought to be remembered.